brethren and sisters. To echo our presiding brother's words, it is good to be here. We have just completed a very, shall we say, satisfactory Bible school. Had the privilege of doing so in Kentucky. And we are particularly glad to be here, as Brother Safford has pointed out, to renew old acquaintances and to fortunately make some new ones. To those who are the brethren and sisters of Christ, this is our hour of remembrance. It's the reason we're here, to remember something that is very important. The master, in speaking in the beginning of his ministry to the woman of Samaria, told her that the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. And we have the great, great privilege of having reason to believe that that is the reason we come together, to worship him in the spirit and in the truth of which the Master was speaking. It's hard for our finite minds to ascend to the level of appreciation to which that great privilege uh, entitles us. The prophet Malachi, several hundred years before the words we have quoted were spoken, spoke of another time in which he says, from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name, speaking in the name of the Lord, shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto his name, my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Now we know that the prophet was speaking of a time that lay at a far distant time in his day. We have reason to believe that the time is not too far distant when that will begin to have a complete antitypical fulfillment, when all shall know and love him from the least unto the greatest among the Gentiles. But we also have this comfort that today we can feel that we are privileged to participate in an incipient fulfillment. It may be very dim as to shadow, as to outline, but it is a fulfillment that there are those who can come together today from among the Gentiles and worship the Father and in spirit and in truth and to present to him an offering, a pure offering, of themselves in this hour of remembrance. 
There were many and varied thoughts in the minds of most of us when we prepared to come to this school. Uh, many of them were healthy thoughts, uh, right thoughts, in which we wish to meet, to assemble for the association, for the renewal of the acquaintances which our brother has spoken of, to participate in the spiritual rejuvenation and in the relaxation that can come from uh, an assemblage in a place, a unique spot such as this. It reminds us somewhat of the Feast of Tabernacles in which the Israelites gathered together under boughs of trees for the several days in which that feast uh, took place. But I'm sure the main motivating thought that was behind each of us was that we are going to meet with those in spirit and in truth at the table of the Lord that will be established in this place as it is at this hour. It gives us a feeling of being a part of something very wonderful. Perhaps when we stop to think concerning this verse that we've read, from the rising of the sun even unto the going down of the same, God's name is held in true remembrance, and the sacrifice of Christ is has brought together this day all over the world those who worship him in spirit and in truth. August 25th, 1957. The sun arose, and the brethren in the South Pacific began to prepare to meet at the table of the Lord in the island of New Zealand. A little later, Many hours ago, though, the brethren and sisters in Australia, the subcontinent, would come together. And as the sun in its orbit would move on, we know that statement is not according to science, but it's a scriptural statement, uh, the brethren in India, if there are any, and then in Israel, if there are any there, the continent of Africa, South Africa, in Germany, France. And then about five or six hours ago, the many thousands in Britain would be assembling for this same purpose, in the same spirit and in the same truth. And now it comes our turn, as the sun proceeds, as the day goes on, to come here from many distant points to meet in spirit and in truth and worship God accordingly. An hour or so from now, the brethren in the Middle West, then the mountains, then on the Pacific coast. A part, an incipient fulfillment, a shadow fulfillment, looking forward to a time when there will not be this small group of perhaps a hundred. But all men shall know him and love him and be moved with that spirit of spoken of. Come, let us go up to the house of the Lord. He will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. That is part of our remembrance. 
But it goes much deeper than that. It goes to the reason that gives this meaning and purpose. Why do we worship in spirit and in truth? Why do we we remember? Because of the life, the sacrificial life, the death, the resurrection, and the glorification of one man, spoken of as the elder brother, the Son of God, whom it is said concerning the Father's work, because God so loved the world that he gave, that he provided his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. That act is the nucleus about which all else moves. It is the only element, the only happening in the earth. It is the supreme event of the ages because it is related to the beginning of things as well as to the end of the whole matter. It gives stability and reality to the ephemeral things with which life is connected. Those who believe God and are and act upon that belief have a very gracious promise from their master, in which we recall he promised that he would sit down with them in the kingdom of God, that from henceforth he would not partake the fruit of the vine until he did so. We know that that will be a memorial partaking, pointing back in remembrance to this same institution. We know, too, that the sacrifices which the sons of Zadok, those king priests of the age to come, those pure offerings which they will offer are offered in memorial, in remembrance of that event that made that kingdom age possible, that would bring it into being and cause those progressively who will have ears to hear to to approach this table as we are privileged to do with the same thanksgiving and with the same love for God and for one another. And so we, we seek to remember these things. And we do well in this hour of remembrance insofar as it is possible using one of the gifts that God has given us to place ourselves in the spiritual company of Jesus and his disciples during the final hours of his trial. The hours that were to be uh, that time in the world's history upon which the whole past and the whole future was related and upon which futurity depended. 
those hours that were to climax the work which the Father had given him to do. Some of us present here have met about this table of the Lord for many years, week by week, to renew our spiritual strength, to attempt to renew the vision and the meaning of the suffering and the sacrifice which is implicit in these symbols before us. In this upper room, to which our minds now go, the gracious appeal of our Lord, do this in remembrance of me till I come, was intended for all succeeding generations of those who would, in that same abiding faith as those who had said to him previously, Lord, to whom else shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. We approach, and having approached, we worship in the same spirit. Thou hast the words of eternal life. We have come unto the Father by him as they did. And these words do this in remembrance of me mean far more than simply remembering that Jesus Christ lived and died. It goes far beyond that simple thought. They mean the understanding as revealed by the word of why he lived and died, of why he was obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. To understand the why and the meaning, it's necessary that we go back to the beginning, as it was related to the beginning, necessitated by the beginning of things. We recall the transgression when we go back to Eden, the transgression of the law of God by the first Adam, and we are, we are poignantly conscious of the sad, sad effects that were produced or were the consequences of that transgression. The alienation and the condemnation that came upon Adam as a result of that disobedience. And not only upon him, but upon all his posterity. For we, you and I, know from experience what it means to be dying creatures, to be possessed of that which constantly drags us down, down, down to the grave. Who doesn't know it? And who has not cried out with the apostle, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But what an unspeakable privilege it is to be privileged to now, at this time, in our spiritual vision, see Jesus, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, the Deliverer, 
the one upon whom the Father hath laid the iniquity of us all, who, as the scripture says, bore our sins in his own body on the cross. But we must understand that. Not that God imputed to him our individual trespasses and transgressions, but that he was made in all points like unto his brethren, not that he died as a substitute for the human race instead of us, but as a representative, as one of our own nature, who felt within himself the temptations and trials and weaknesses of the flesh and who cried out to God because of them for deliverance and was heard in that he feared by his nature in his nature he bore our transgressions and our weaknesses and it's a part of our remembrance to seek at this time to identify ourselves with his sacrifice, with his struggle in the flesh. We have a hymn, the words of which open to us a vision. Beyond where Kedron's waters flow, behold the suffering Savior go to sad Gethsemane. We behold him, and at the same time attempt, in some small measure, limited as we are by our mortal, finite minds, attempt in some small measure to appreciate or understand this hour of his travail. We see him as he leaves the company of his three beloved disciples. He had, he had reached this point where his spirit was crying out for help. We know that as he left the upper room, he called his three particular, those for whom he perhaps had a particular affinity to him, seeking to draw from them a degree of help and comfort in this great hour of sorrow. And he, we recall, in the shadows of the night, goes with them to this garden beyond where Kedron's waters flow. And he leaves them at the gate, at the entrance to the garden. And he goes alone into the deeper shadows. And we behold him falling prostrate on the ground. And we hear a cry, O oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But then, we know that he immediately paused and considered why he was there. What was the meaning of this to him? that he knew that he was there as a righteous sin-bearer. 
that upon him, upon the next few moments of battle, would depend the salvation of the human race. Generations of faithful men and women who had looked to the coming of a just one who would give meaning and end and purpose to that law under which they had lived for so many generations. He looked back to the beginning, to righteous Abel, whose blood had cried out to God from the ground, not for vengeance and vindictiveness, but for forgiveness, righteousness, and peace. And he saw faithful Abraham, whom he said, saw his day, and seeing it was glad. And to Moses, the prophet, likened to himself, who was faithful in all his house. And as we have said, to all those generations coming after, who, offering the sacrifices according to the law, those multitudes of animals which had been slain, all with the thought on the part of the faithful that there would come one whom would, in whom would be consummated and brought to an end those rivers of blood that were offered that could not take away sin, but could cover it only until. And now the time had been reached that until was here. He thought of the promise that had been made to his father, Abraham, his father after the flesh. In thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Beyond that, he saw all those generations of the faithful that were to come after him who would require forgiveness of sins, who would too need a Redeemer in whom their faith would be brought, would bring in their salvation, and through whom that great company could stand before the throne of glory and sing of their Redeemer. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou hast redeemed us unto our God out of every kindred and tongue and nation and people. He saw that multitude. He knew that it depended upon him to provide himself as that offering that would make all that possible and without which there was no possibility aside from his father's complete rearrangement. And then his next words are, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. But he was weak, just as you and I. The flesh was very apparent at this moment. And the record tells us that being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. What was the reason for such suffering? He knew the beginning from the end. 
He knew his father would raise him from the dead. But he was as you and I would be under those circumstances. He shrunk as a human being. His perfect knowledge of the past, the future, gave him an insight as to what the immediate future held that no other man could ever have. We are spared in knowing the future. He knew the future. It helped, and it was a weakness. For he saw himself as the spirit in the psalmist had revealed him in the 22nd Psalm. As one hanging on the cross in the midst of his enemies, crying out to his father, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Oh, my God, I cried in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have set me round. Yes, the high priests of Israel, the self-righteous Sadducees and Pharisees, beset him round. They gapped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. He knew those words were spoken of him, and he knew the next few, next few hours would see the consummation of the man. Being in an agony, great drops of blood, but there was more to it than that. Here is where his divine side is apparent. That was the suffering of Jesus, the Son of Man. But the suffering of Jesus, the Son of God, was as great, or greater. For he knew also that as he hung on that cross, this wonderful spirit from his father that had sustained him for three years and more. He knew that that spirit could not, under the law in which he was born and subject to, dwell longer with him. And his, his whole spiritual being shrunk in this agony from the realization that when that spirit had left him, could leave him, would leave him because of the curse under the law, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. He shrunk from this departure of his father from him more than from the dying from which he knew he would be delivered. That was the great cause of his distress, of the father forsaking him in his hour of death, in his hour of hanging on the cross. And that would cause him, as he prayed in his agony, the Spirit has recorded no doubt, and we're privileged to know the words which he would utter, if not the words, the thoughts, they are revealed, this prayer, and they're probably recorded best in the 69th Psalm. For here is the Son of Man and Son of God crying out to his Father, Save me, O God, for the waters are coming to my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. 
I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. We, we cannot uh, arise. We cannot enter fully into this matter. That will be one of the, uh, shall we say, the rewards of sitting down with him in his father's kingdom to be able to enter fully into the appreciation of that which made the kingdom possible. But here we can only try. And in his sufferings, in his distress, he apparently seeks human solace, for he returns to his three followers whom he had left at the gate with the instructions, watch and pray, and he finds them sleeping. Poor we creatures. Could ye not watch with me one hour? We sometimes think when we read that, if we'd been there, we wouldn't have gone to sleep. The hour was too fraught with suspense and tragedy. But how many times today, when we have the record of what has gone on, what has happened, and we have the instructions to be instant in season, out of season, serving the Lord. That's equivalent to watching and praying with him one hour. How many times does he find us spiritually asleep? How many times have our, has our spiritual capacities reached a very, very low point in which we wonder if we are really awake? to the meaning of what it means to be brethren and sisters of Christ. So we can't condemn men who had gone many, many hours without rest and sleep. He is, his was an appeal. Could you not watch with me one hour? Can't we? Do we? <clears throat> he goes back. He goes back to the only source of prayer, the only source of help, to his Father. We find it recorded. Reproach hath broken my heart. I am full of heaviness. I looked for some to take pity, and there was none. And for comforters, and I found none. And in his agony of prayer, Again he goes back. We have the picture there of one so distraught in his suffering, torn between seeking divine strength and human help from those whom he has three years had created a love and an affinity that he felt very strongly he could lean upon at this time. He goes back, and they're still asleep. And again he returns to prayer. And in the Father's good time, as he always does to those who love him, he reaches out with compassion, with help, and with the only sustaining comfort to which we can look in our hour of travail as Jesus looked. There appeared, says the record, 
an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Now, with that strength, he's won his struggle. He's won his battle with the flesh. He can rise, feeling this sustaining power, this angelic divine strength in which his spirit has been enabled to triumph. And he can go forth, even unto death, that through that death he might declare the righteousness of his Father, that he might open the way for all those whom he had seen in his mind's eye, past and future, that he might open the way for them to the favor of God and seal it by his blood seal the redemption which they and he sought for himself and for all who look unto him as the author and the finisher of their faith and he as we for the joy that was set before him in his case can endure the cross despising the shame and he has sat down at the right hand of his father. This is a small part of what it means when we come together in remembrance of that which should inspire and comfort and strengthen those who respond to that hour of which Jesus spake those who come unto him in spirits and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him.